From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. Well, here are the issues. President Biden warned Russian President Vladimir Putin in a virtual summit not to invade Ukraine. Biden also laid out the economic and security costs Russia would face should it decide to invade its neighbor to the West. The two leaders spoke for roughly two hours amid escalating tensions following Russia's military buildup along its border with Ukraine. The House passed legislation that paves the way for Congress to raise the debt limit and prevent an unprecedented federal default by allowing Democrats to circumvent a GOP filibuster in the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer insists that President Biden's Build Back Better bill can pass his chamber by December 25th, even as doubts grow that such a timeline is achievable, given the procedures of the Senate and the lingering differences among Democrats. The Senate voted to nullify President Biden's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for larger employers, giving Republicans a big symbolic victory. Leaders of more than 100 countries attending President Biden's virtual summit for democracy said they want to see concrete commitments to push back against authoritarianism, as well as an admission by the U.S. that it has work to do regarding its own democracies. Germany's parliament elected Olaf Scholz as the new chancellor, marking the end of Angela Merkel's 16 years as the country's leader. Scholz's center-left Social Democratic Party will lead a coalition government along with the Greens and the libertarian Free Democratic Party. Scholz will face his first biggest challenge of leading Germany's way out of the depths of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Cindy, President Biden and President Putin spoke for roughly two hours amid escalating tensions following Russia's military buildup along its border with Ukraine. So what was the expectation of this meeting? Well, what we are hearing, Kim, is that there were no big breakthroughs from the meeting. And what we've been hearing here out of the State Department and the White House and National Security Advisor is that President Biden did not accept Russian President Putin's so-called red lines on Ukraine. Putin was basically saying, look, if you don't want me to send troops in and invade, then you need to promise that Ukraine will be denied entrance into NATO, which is Putin's Putin has been worried about for a long time, and Ukraine wants to get into NATO, but that does not seem to be imminent in any way. But Putin has always said that that would be a huge threat and that basically he is responding to that. But Biden, as we hear, stood his ground and said, no, Ukraine and, and NATO will decide and if and when it becomes a member of NATO, and Putin does not have any veto power over that which has also been the same message coming out of NATO and other countries. So at the State Department, they've been saying that after the summit, basically Biden made quite clear to Putin that if he does invade Ukraine again, as in 2014, then the U.S. and other countries will coordinate and he will face much tougher sanctions. 
probably targeting especially the financial sector and banks, that the U.S. will do things that it did not do before, once again, with other countries. It just struck me as you were talking, Cindy, that what Biden did to Putin is what Putin has been doing to the United States as far as its involvement in other countries. Putin, Russia, along with China, have been saying countries have the right to determine their own destiny and their own governments. And what Biden said to Putin is, Ukraine has the same right that you are saying every government has to have and every country has as to their form of government. Most of the analysis I've seen of the situation says the Russian military buildup is a credible invasion force. There's a lot of questions as to what to do with that force. With a force that size already amassed, it's a, as large an effort to stand it down and pull it back as it was to assemble it in the first place. So Putin needs something to come out of this situation with in order to claim victory, in order to pull back. Many analysts are very worried that because of the size of the buildup along the border, that Putin has very little options other than to go in. So this diplomatic effort is going to be one that is going to be tremendous, and we'll see how it plays out over the next several weeks and months. Also, there was some speculation by analysts as to whether the United States would send any military troops to the border, and it's my understanding that we are not. That's correct, Kim. That has been made clear. Biden was asked about that and said, no, the U.S. is not looking to send troops. The threat is with very tough economic sanctions that would be painful for Russia and possibly for some of Putin's oligarchs. So I think, as Steve is absolutely right, that Putin is weighing his options and he does not like a Ukraine growing inexorably closer to the West and closer to becoming a member perhaps of NATO or of the European Union. Perhaps he's also testing the resolve now of President Biden, of the new brand new government in Germany and of NATO just to see how they would react. And I think that Biden has done his level best to say short of military force, but that there will be coordinated and sanctions unlike anything that Putin has seen before. And those sanctions could target not only the financial sector and those oligarchs that support Putin and that keep him financially operative, but as well the Russian oil sector. That has multiple repercussions, including repercussions on the West and the United States if sanctions against the oil industry result in higher prices at home. So Biden and the NATO allies and the European allies have this delicate balancing act to perform to try and keep the Russian troops out of Ukraine while still maintaining a credible deterrent through economic sanctions rather than military action. Yes, and then we will have to continue to see as the two leaders will appoint representatives who are expected to rapidly begin a discussion on this complex confrontational situation. But on Capitol Hill, the House passed legislation that paves the way for Congress to raise the debt limit. So really, Steve, what does this mean for the U.S.? It means that the country is not going to default on its bills, which would create a major financial crisis, at least theoretically a major financial crisis, what we've never seen before. But Democrats do seem to have gotten a small victory in this stalemate over raising the country's debt limit in that Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell agreed to have a vote on the debt limit that 
is an exception to the Senate rules, which require 60 votes in the 100-member Senate, 60 votes for any matter to just be considered for a vote. McConnell had been holding out, trying to raise the debt limit to multiple trillions of dollars and hang that politically on Democrats. The Senate is evenly divided at 50-50. So for any debt limit consideration, 10 Republicans were going to have to say, okay, let's consider it. They haven't. McConnell has, in the minds of some political analysts, blinked as far as allowing the Democrats to move forward. But I believe McConnell was also afraid politically that Republicans, especially Republicans who are running for Senate in 2022, would be labeled and tarred with causing a major financial catastrophe. And that's something that he certainly doesn't want to have hung on his party. Also, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, in a letter, said that now that the House has passed the reconciliation bill, their goal is to pass the Build Back Better legislation before December 25th and get it to the president's desk. But Democrats face big challenges in getting this done. Why is Schumer confident that they can accomplish this before Christmas? I think it's kind of more wishful thinking than anything else. Schumer's party, the 50 Democrats, are still divided kind of on a 47 to 3 kind of vote, and especially one Democrat, West Virginia's Joe Manchin, is saying that this Build Back Better bill, which is a little under $2 trillion, is still too expensive. He wants more changes. And the Democrats in the reconciliation process, you only need 51 votes to pass it because it's a budget issue and it's considered a must-pass legislation. So in order to just get a vote on this, they've got to mollify their own most conservative senator, Senator Manchin, and then bring the bill to a vote and have Vice President Harris cast the deciding vote. Democrats still are not united about the final number, the final price tag. And Manchin says until his concerns are resolved and met and considered, he's not going to vote for it. Even if he does say, yes, I'll vote for all of this, it still has to go through a process that could take us past Christmas. So Schumer, I'm not quite sure why he's saying Christmas. It may be to put more political pressure on Senator Manchin. But right now, the Democrats own this and they've got to move it forward. And also, when you look at the steady rise of consumer prices, it has put a strain on cash-strapped households and boosted political pressure on President Biden and the Democrats with less than a year until midterm elections. So how will this spending on top of inflation affect Democrats in the 2022 midterms? It's not a good look for Democrats in the 2022 midterms, no matter what gets passed or doesn't get passed. History is on the Republican side. Usually in the midterm, after a president is elected, the party that does not occupy the White House usually picks up seats in the House of Representatives. Republicans need only three or four seats to pick up control of the House of Representatives. So it already looks like a 2022 midterm victory for Republicans before any votes are cast. In order for Democrats to get this done, they've got to make the compromises within their own caucus and then make sure it gets put forward. And then they've got to go out and show Americans how they are benefiting from this spending, despite the inflation that everybody is seeing because of previous 
COVID spending and supply chain issues and gas prices going up. So Democrats are really behind the eight ball in trying to not only get this passed, but then sell it to a public that is already skeptical and already paying more for what they used to pay for last year. Also on Capitol Hill, the Senate voted to nullify President Biden's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for large employers. So if the resolution passes both the Senate and the House, will the president veto it? Well, as Steve mentioned, President Biden is having all kinds of trouble with the Senate and this evenly divided Senate. And this measure to repeal Biden's either vaccination or testing mandate for private sector employers with more than 100 employees passed with every Republican voting for it and two Democrats, including Joe Manchin of West Virginia and also John Tester of Montana. And their arguments were that they support the vaccine, but they don't like the federal government mandating it. Democrats were upset and say, look, you know, in certain places in the country, emergency rooms and intensive care units are being overrun again. We're seeing soaring numbers and especially unvaccinated people getting really sick. And they're saying Republicans opposing efforts by the Biden administration to get people vaccinated, that this is sending exactly the wrong message and that this is giving fuel to the fire for the uh, so-called anti-vax people and the anti-vax campaign. So the House, I think, with a slim Democratic majority, is unlikely to pass this measure. And Biden has said that if it were somehow to pass in the House, that he would veto it. So this is probably not going anywhere, but Biden has also faced problems with these vaccine mandates in the courts, where it is likely to be the biggest problem for him. Mentioning the most recent case with the latest coming from the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Georgia said the president's vaccine requirement for federal contractors exceeded his authority. So looking at this, how will these rulings affect Biden's strategy on vaccine mandate? I think one of the things that we're seeing more of is many businesses already mandating vaccines and vaccinations for their workers, not in all parts of the country, but in many parts of the country. Businesses see vaccinations as the way to get back to an economic normal. Whether or not the legislation or Biden's mandates stand up in court or not, American business is pretty much leading the charge to, to get as many workers vaccinated as possible. And you're seeing more and more cases of people being let go because they're not vaccinated or unable to get jobs because they're unvaccinated. So we're seeing an uptick in vaccinations now that the Omicron variant is out there. And I think that it remains to be seen how effective any government vaccine mandate is going to be if businesses don't also pick it up and get their own people vaccinated. Yes, and also the Omicron has a sister variant out there as well. So we will just have to follow these developments on the different variants of the COVID-19 virus. Time now for a short break. And when we return, a summit with world leaders that hopes to counter authoritarianism, bolster good governance, and promote respect for human rights. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. 
While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. Well, Cindy, the Biden administration's Summit for Democracy aims to promote democracy and human rights around the world. U.S. Secretary of State Blinken also participated in a virtual discussion with young Democratic leaders from around the world as part of the Summit for Democracy. So what are some of the challenges facing the Summit for Democracy? Well, the summit had been criticized a lot before it even got started, with some countries saying, you know, well, the U.S. has its own problems. They shouldn't be preaching to the rest of the world about democracy. And one of the top State Department officials for democracy acknowledged that and said that the U.S. is approaching the summit with humility and confidence, acknowledging America's own shortcomings and seeking to learn from others, and confident that if the world's democracies work together, Together, then they do have much more to offer their citizens than autocratic or authoritarian regimes do. But one of the reasons why President Biden decided to hold this summit was the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol by supporters of then-President Trump in an effort to overturn the election results. So the U.S. recognizes that there's a threat to democracy from within and without, and Secretary Blinken has made this a central tenet going around the world, saying this is very, very serious. The authoritarians are, are not playing around. This is not abstract. Looking at, we were talking about Putin threatening a major war on European soil with Ukraine, which could draw other countries in. Perhaps Putin thinks with the sort of a threat to a peaceful transfer of power in the United States, maybe Putin and perhaps also China think that democracy is on the wane. And I think this summit is an effort to say, no, look, democracy is not on the wane. We're fighting back. And it's supposed to be followed by a year of action, especially focusing on fighting corruption around the world. Biden seems determined to show that democracy is not backsliding here in the U.S., despite what was seen on January 6th by the world on the attack on the Capitol. And that, as Cindy said, it certainly is one of the things that is driving this desire for a democracy summit, not necessarily isolating China and Russia, but they're the two big countries not invited here. It was interesting that the ambassadors from Russia and China to the United States submitted a joint editorial op-ed, so to speak, a commentary about the Democracy Summit and touting that their countries are also democratic and they take liberties with the word democracy and the de definition of democracy in their op-ed. But it certainly is seen as, as an issue and the question of whose democracy is the definition of democracy. And the United States, as a democracy for now almost 250 years, Biden is, certainly wants to make sure that people understand that the United States is not backsliding and is taking what happened on January 6th seriously. Yes, those are some really good points both of you all have raised. So we will have to follow this year and see what action the leaders will be taking towards democracy. I wanted to move on to get to our final topic, we look first at Angela Merkel, who was assured a place in history by becoming Germany's first female chancellor on November 22, 2005. 
Over the next 16 years, she was credited with raising Germany's profile and influence, working to hold a fractious European Union together, managing a string of crises, and being a role model for women. The 67-year-old's tenure has ended on a high note with international praise and popularity at home. Her successor, Olaf Scholz, will lead a coalition government that some say will be more aligned with the United States on the world stage and will seek a more assertive, unified European Union. So, Cindy, what can Germany and the world expect from Schultz leading Germany? You summed it up well, Kim, but it really is the end of an era with Chancellor Merkel leaving. There were dramatic scenes in the German parliament and the Bundestag, and she sort of, as characteristic of her, got a, a long-standing ovation and then quietly slipped out the back door. She was never much of one for drama, and she was a source of stability. And she grew a lot in stature during the 16 years, and she certainly also boosted Germany's stature and image of soft power tremendously on the world stage. And opinion polls show that, that Germany is now one of the most highly regarded countries around the world. To sum in her own conservative party's irritation, she said that, that she would sleep well at night knowing that Olaf Scholz was going to be running the country. And he, as the more leftist social democrat candidate, kind of ran on saying, well, basically, he's going to be the next Merkel. He's also soft-spoken, not a lot of drama, not overly charismatic or anything like that saying that there would be, uh, you know, a lot of continuation, while at the same time their slogan was, with the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, is to dare more progress. And I think that was the criticism of some of Merkel that, yes, you know, she was a very steady hand in times of crises, but also that things had sort of stagnated and that Germany needs to catch up, especially on Wi-Fi, digitalization, and things like that. But Olaf has been finance minister, so he has a lot of experience being part of a government. He was a mayor of Hamburg, and the first major challenge that he faces is Germany's having its highest ever corona death rates. So COVID is the first challenge of the day for him. Many see some slight change from where we've been for 16 years under Merkel as far as Germany's internal politics are concerned. The Social Democratic Party plans for a more progressive, as, as Cindy mentioned, economic agenda, stepped up efforts on climate change, liberalizing some social political issues, including more protection for the LGBT community, and perhaps a movement to easing a path to citizenship in Germany. So I think a more progressive agenda, but certainly not a major shift from Merkel's 16 years as leader of Germany. Also, some have often compared Schultz to President Biden regarding his knowledge of the political process and his get-it-done attitude. Others are concerned that, will he really listen to the people of Germany? Your thoughts? Yeah, I think the brand new government has already been criticized, for example, for not doing more to stop the pandemic before they even got into office. And so, you know, they're basically just still moving in. So I think that we have to wait and see. Schultz has vowed to listen to the people of Germany and to especially make sure that working people and people who are not at the top, that they do not get left behind in any of these new measures. So I think there's a lot of optimism now with this, what 
what they call the traffic light coalition. And I think a lot of people were very happy with Michael, but they think that 16 years is plenty and it is time for a change. I have to say with regard to the U.S. foreign policy did not play a very big role at all during the campaign. It was more, you know, domestic issues. And with the Greens, of course, wanting to get, especially in areas like transportation and agriculture and things like that, more environmentally friendly measures. So we'll have to see how that plays out on the world stage. But Schultz has definitely said that the U.S. is a key friend and ally to Germany. So I don't think anything will be changing there. And the new foreign minister, Annalisa Baerbock, I think that we may see a tougher stance on China from her. I think that the U.S. and Secretary Blinken may find a very willing partner in her. Well, interesting. We'll have to see how that develops. And we are out of time and we'll have to end the show on that note. My thanks go to our panelist, Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Steve Radish, VOA Executive Producer. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. 